Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. The guest on this episode is Shane Simpson, and we sit down and talk about turkeys. And I got to say, Shane Simpson is one of those guys that is just super, super humble and willing to talk to you and educate any way he can. And he has a vast vast amount of knowledge when it comes to turkeys and you can tell how passionate he is by everything he does he's got great content out on youtube and i believe it's shane simpson on youtube he's got uh, his website that is calling all turkeys he is a competitive turkey caller and he has won national wild turkey federation championships um I believe for turkey calling and for owl or locator calls. I, th- I think it's owl calling. And then he, uh, he's he got a Cali, uh, Cali the Dog Chronicles, or the tracking dog, and he's got her, and you'll hear her make a little bit of an appearance in this episode. Um, but those are all fun to watch, and you could tell he's really amped up and excited for turkey season to be coming up. And me, who is not really, uh, I I wouldn't say proficient turkey hunter. I've only killed a few turkeys in my life. And uh, it's one of those things that when you can reach out and talk to somebody like this that truly knows what's going on, it's uh, an amazing experience just just to sit and listen without even asking a question. But of course, you know, had some questions and I hope it helps me and helps other people on their upcoming turkey hunts this spring. So without any more, we'll just get into the episode because it's pretty good and I want you guys to hear it. 
Okay, I'm sitting here and I got uh, Shane Simpson I'm talking to. And Shane, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us who you are and what you do. All right, well, my name is Shane Simpson. I'm originally from South Carolina, Rock Hill, South Carolina. Moved up to uh, up here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota about, I think it's going to be 12 years this spring. Um, I don't know what the t- what all the viewers want to hear about me. Um, started turkey hunting when I was young, I guess. Um, didn't have any access to private land, so I was basically self-taught on public land. So that's kind of what I've done all my life, is hunting public land. And uh, uh, I guess about 10 years ago, I got into competition calling. Uh, I've done fairly well at that one a bunch of state championships tied for first at Grand Nationals last year in the Owl Hooting uh, Championship. Ended up losing and getting second in the call-off. But, uh, yeah, I produced a turkey hunting show on YouTube. I'm a YouTuber called Calling All Turkeys. And I travel in the spring and primarily hunt public land and go all over the country and do that sort of thing. So I guess that's, that's it in a nutshell. And if anything else you want me to add, go ahead and ask me. Well, you've got uh, your website where you actually sell turkey calls that you make as well, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, I make some, I make some calls, and also uh, sell some for hooks that I pro staff for, and he kind of supports the show also, and we have a great relationship. So you'll see his <clears throat> on my website, callingallturkeys dot com. You'll see calls I actually make myself by hand, and then some of the stuff that he produces. Okay. Um, I'm sure there's more out there and I know you got a lot of good content on your, uh, YouTube channel as well as, uh, different clips and stuff like that of actual sounds of birds and what they make as well. You kind of break yeah. those down into each. So do you actually raise the turkeys and record that audio yourself or what are you doing there? No, I actually did raise turkeys when I was young and I actually had a wild turkey that I was raising also. He was a mean son of a gun. <laughs> It was actually, a, it was a car, a, a, a person I knew came around a curve and hit a flock of turkeys with poles in the road and stuff. He couldn't stop and went off in the ditch. And one of the turkeys was pinned under the car and injured. And so he kind of healed it and put it in a, you know, put it in a pen and let it heal up. And then he gave it to me later. And it was a gobbler and he was tame as could be. And he used to roost on my handrail at my house. And you tried to get in the house, he would peck at you and um, he would chase the, you know, people come up there to put gas and, you know, little tanks out behind your house and put propane or natural gas or whatever in, had a voicemail. This is back when you had voicemail, voicemail, uh, when I got <laughs> home, you know, ask machine. Um, Mr. Simpson, if you want me to fill up your gas tank, you better put that turkey up. Cause he chased me all over the yard today. And, yeah, uh, so, I mean, I had turkeys growing up and I had domestic hens and, and that wild gobbler. And so I got to hear a lot of that stuff. But everything you see on my website or my YouTube channel is actual wild turkey audio or um, even barred owls I have on there. I think I have a affiliated woodpecker sound. You know, stuff that's all associated with turkey hunting. Come to speak, uh, think of it, I don't have any uh, coyote owls. I need to get some coyote uh, audio. Well, I do have some, I think, on one of those, but anyway. <laughs> so I had, uh, I, I raised a lot of birds out here where I live too. Um, and I've only been able to have turkeys, I think, twice because my wife hate, absolutely hates them when she has to go out and feed the birds because they fall mm-hmm. around. 
she goes, you know, they're such a pretty bird with their body until you look at that head. And that uh, they, they just chase her all around the yard. And I said, honey, it's not because they're trying to hurt you. It's because they're following that food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really care too much for them. But uh, so you got, I know you got started calling. A guy actually gave you a call and you started practicing with that uh, stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, one of my first experiences with a mouse call. It's probably one of my first turkey hunts or as of, you know, first three, I guess. I'm not sure which one, but we had some uh, public land next to where we lived and I was over there hunting and just kind of walked around me and my brother and ran into another hunter and he said, what do you, what do you see young fellas doing? And it's like, we're turkey hunting. Said, do you know how to turkey hunt? It's like, no, we're just walking around hoping to see one, just carrying a gun, didn't know, have a clue how to turkey hunt. He reached in his little pack and he had some brand new calls. They were still in the package and he gave each of us a, a mouse call. And that's, that was my first experience with a, with a turkey call. And it just so happened to be a mouse call. And I, I'm kind of glad of that because that kind of set me on the path to, to getting good with a mouse call. I mean, all the calls have their you know, pros and cons, but a mouse call just seems to have more pros than cons. And it's, and it's really helped me over the years, I think, by giving that initial push into a mouth call use. I mean, I, I gotta say, I, uh, I drive around in my car and I practice and, uh, I've noticed that when you first put it in for about the first five minutes or so, it really, uh, it sounds terrible. And I don't think it's me, even though I know I sound terrible as well, but is there a reason for that? Why, uh, but you, why it does that? You probably don't keep your reads separated, do you? You know, when you're not, when no. you're not using them. So, you know, latex is a natural material. It comes from the sap of a tree or whatever. Um, and it'll degrade if you don't take care of it and this and that. But it also, you know, get, it's, I guess, um, water-soluble. I don't know what the actual term would be to describe it. Um, but, you know, like a call, if you call too much with it, that latex in, tends to soak up moisture. And that's why if you run a call too long, the reeds start to soak up moisture and get fat, and that'll affect the sound. But also, if you just put the call away when you're done using it, those reeds will dry and stick together like glue. And so when you first put it in your mouth, if you haven't uh, used it in a while and it's dry, the reeds are stuck together. So now instead of having a three-reed call where each is moving independently, you have basically one thick reed, one uh, one reed that's very thick. And so you're not going to get any... You need each reed to, like, the middle reed or, or the top reed would produce your raft read right below it would produce your front end note and the combination of running the two together gives you that that one two uh yelp that uh clean front end rolling into the raft so now you just have all the reads stuck together you can't get that so a good idea you know and as you say you had the first few minutes you run it what you're doing is it's starting to soak up moisture and then the reads just separate on their own so a lot of people what they like to do is take a little break off the end of a toothpick or they have these plastic reed separators when you're getting ready to put the call away just slide those in between each reed keep them from touching and then let them just dry normally you know air dry and then they then they as soon as you put it in your mouth later they're separated but dry the sound will you know you'll be able to reproduce the sound that it should be so do you take like a whole toothpick or just break a piece just of it break, off or something like that like a- yeah i just break off like the last i don't know quarter inch or or, or less than a half inch and just slide it in there. You know, wet, you know, stick them toothpick in your mouth and, and kind of wet it so it'll slide in there between them. 
the main thing, I know some people like to separate each read, like on a three-read call or four-read, which is, you don't see too many four-read calls, but uh, three-read seems to be the most popular, popular, and some people like to separate each. Um, the, the main thing, and what I normally do if I separate the reads, is just the top read. You know, the, bottom, the very bottom of one three-read call is not really doing anything. It's kind of giving backbone to the mouth call, kind of like a fishing rod has a medium action or heavy action. Adding that third read on the bottom just kind of gives it a backbone, allows you to call more aggressively and this and that. But it really doesn't need to be separated from that middle read to get you the front end. So the top read and the read right below it is what mainly needs to be separated. And, and like I said, I don't always separate my reads like they're in my pocket right now in my call case and well, they're not separated but if i was turkey hunting and i and i'm moving around and and i'm popping the truck to go to a different spot and maybe i don't want my reads to be stuck together as soon as i get out of the truck and i want it to be ready at an instant uh i may slide a reed separator in there or a toothpick just to keep it from sticking together one while i'm moving from one location to the other um but I mean that's that's the reasoning behind it, and it that's so when you get your call out, it's ready to go. You don't you don't have to. You see people on video sometimes they're putting their the call up to the mouth and licking the reeds, and then they grabbing it and trying to peel them apart. Um, you're wasting time. Number one, you may be in a pinch where you need to make a call, and you're, you're fiddling with your call. Or the the worst case is you you start trying to peel them apart and you tear the latex, um, and that it ruins your call. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually done that. So I've actually done that. That's why I wanted to ask you that. I think that's good information for everybody to, everybody to know there. Um, so let's talk about scouting for birds a little bit. When you're picking a hunt area to do, uh, you're probably doing some e-scouting first. What exactly are you looking for? Are you going like a general area where you think there's going to be birds, you know, there's going to be birds, or are you kind of trying to pick apart terrain and find certain things? A lot of it depends on which state I'm going to. Um, you know, some states I look mainly for like big tracks on land, for instance. Like in Minnesota here where I hunt, there's one, one area I hunt and it's, uh, I want to be able to get out of my truck and be able to cover a lot of ground without getting back in the truck to drive anymore. And so it's one contiguous chunk of land. It's 25,000 acres or whatever it is. But then I may go out to South Dakota and I don't need the big land uh, tracks like a that or I desire like in uh, eastern states where there's a lot of woods and out there you know there may just be a drainage with some cottonwoods if there's a, a river or something with cottonwoods or big trees for roosting I know that's where I need to focus on and then those birds out there will travel the prairies without trees for miles and so I just need to hone in on where the birds roosting and then then I can chase them all day once I know where they're going to come back and forth to each morning and evening and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, a lot of e-scouting is what I start off with. I don't actually get a whole lot of boots on the ground scouting anymore these days just because, you know, my hunting takes me all over the country and I may drive through the night and get to my spot at 3 a.m. and start hunting that, that next morning. So my, my scouting basically comprises of me actually hunting and scouting at the same time these days. Um, but yeah, when I'm looking at uh, e-scouting, looking at a chunk, I, I first decide which track or which part of the state do I want to hunt? What Do I want a big track to go after or do I want to go to a small one? And then I'm looking for uh, 
um, different types of terrain features. Um, like let's say we're in uh, bluff country, for instance. I'll use Minnesota again. I like to have, um, and I'm looking at my topo also. I like to have little finger ridges, points that come out off these bluffs that have a little flat, and have woods there. You know, there's fields, a lot of ag up here, and, and a lot of the public land has ag that uh, I guess the DNR leases the rights to the farmers to, to plant on it. But um, it seems like the turkeys like to hang out on those points, those wooded points that have a, just a little bit of a flat on them and not you know, a sharp rollover on either side of that, that ridge. I'm looking for points like that. Um, and I'm looking for multiple ones where I can hop from one to the other, for instance. But then if I'm going to, say, like a place like Mississippi where I hunted this past spring, um, one of the goals was to look for difficulty in access something that's going to get me away from other hunters. And it's not so much, you know, it's desirable for what were the turkeys like. It was what's going to be undesirable for the hunters that want to go in there. And so I was looking for water access and this and that. And then I was trying to find, you know, uh, transitions also. Like, just like when you're deer hunting, you, you <clears throat> excuse me, you know, deer hunters look for transition lines, you know, pines turn into, you know, clear cut or, or hardwoods and this and that. I'm also looking for that with turkeys, especially on flat terrain, say down in Mississippi in these bottoms. You know, what's going to be different than other everything else? And that's where, where trees change. And you know, I would find a stand of pines and then it mixed with hardwood. And then maybe there's some old, uh, you know, they had thinned the woods at one point and there's a lot of undergrowth coming in. So there's another transition area there. And it gives a mix of cover for the turkeys. And I figured... Those are going to be areas that turkeys are going to kind of bounce around back and forth, you know, depending on what they're eating or if they're displaying or trying to find a hen to mate with the gobblers are. And, and so that's kind of a brief summary of, of some of the things. We could go in more detail if you like, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's, no, I mean, that's good. If you want to talk, elaborate more on it, it's up to you. But, uh, I mean, so you're basically looking for either like a, points that connect to ag, like a transition type or transition between trees, things like that. So kind of similar to like funnels that you'd find for deer and things like that then. All of it's uh, kind of, I guess, region specific. You know, if I was hunting, like I'm hunting up here in Minnesota and, and this particular track, it's bluff country, a lot of hills, and there's some ag mixed in. So there's different areas that I want to focus in. Number one, this place gets hunted hard because it's public land and the field are not where you really want to hunt. There's a lot of hunters that go up there and pop a ground line up there and they, they see people up there walking. And of course, turkeys and deer and everything else are accustomed to seeing the occasional person hiking, looking for morel mushrooms, uh, farmers. But what I've noticed over the years is they, they really are difficult to call in when you're trying to hunt those fields. But if you get into the woods, they're a little bit more uh, relaxed little more comfortable because they have cover number one and then and they probably don't get hunted a whole lot in the woods you know most of the people up here that they like to hunt the fields and so i'm looking for features like that that you know back in the woods and i noticed that these little ridges with these little flats that's where the turkeys like to to hang out when they're not in the field they, they kind of you know mill around or strut or stand there on those flats and gobble and try to call up hens um, it's the other points that are just real sharp that really don't give you a nice flat area to, for them to stand on. And, and, and I, that's kind of what I look for, those areas. And I, that's where I usually find the turkeys on those little 
flats out there on those points. And if I can find multiple ones, then I move around. You know, and then I go to, say, like Florida is flat. And I'm not worried about, there's not a lot of fields. It's, it's swamps and stuff. So down there, that you got to have knowledge, I guess, of the area you're going. Down there, I know that the turkeys like cyclic heads, and that's where they tend to roost. That's not necessarily where they spend all day. So that's going to be areas that I look for. So you have the, the cypress heads is where they typically like to roost. They may not spend all day there. You know, they'll walk around, but that's good places to find on a map to pinpoint. Because once they fly down, there's a good possibility they're still in the general area. And so it's, it's really going to depend on what state, what type of terrain you're hunting um, that dictates how you approach each one. And, and that really comes with a lot of experience uh, hunting those areas. But you can also get it from talking to people that actually, you know, hunt those areas. I mean, I could easily just pick up the phone and, or I could pick up the phone. I have friends down there, but, you know, if I didn't know anything about Florida, I could go on some of these forums and Facebook pages these days and, and just ask general questions like that. Don't ask, hey, what's a good WMA to hunt? But, you know, ask, <laughs> if I was hunting this WMA, I'm looking at the satellite images. What kind of key features would I want to focus on? And, and people will tell you that. I mean, so. And then you could always look through old posts and see if they got a picture with them in front of the yeah, sign. <laughs> I've, I've done that. I, I used to, uh, early on, before I started hunting Florida, when I first started hunting Florida, um, there were a lot of vlogs, you know, that people would go hunting and bike into these swamps, and they would post pictures. And they would tell exactly what WMA they were at, and they, and they would show these pictures. And so, I mean, some of them were so telling that I could almost figure out where they were killing their birds at. Um, so I did a lot of that early on. Just people would create these web blogs or their own personal journals, blogs with text and pictures. And, and so those were very uh, uh, learned a lot from those, basically. There's a, a buddy I have on social media that says he does that same thing with, with morels, and he goes, I love it when people post a picture of all the morels they found, and it's got a location, or they'll take a picture of it by a tree, and it's got a location, and tells them the park they're in or wherever they're at, and he goes, if it's within three miles, I'm headed there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good uh, good telltale, so if you're listening to this, turn on your location when you take a picture for us, please. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would love to, in my videos, because I hunt a lot of public land and I'm trying to, you know, educate also on some of the strategies and why I'm doing things. I would love to be able to show satellite images, but I know that it doesn't take much to figure out where you're hunting. For instance, I was hunting the, uh, watching the, the hunting public. And uh, do you watch those guys any at all? I do, I do. I really like their content. Okay, so That's uh, I, one of the few shows I watch. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into specifics, but I was watching one of their hunts, and based on the few images I could gather from their phone, you know, they show them when you're looking at their phone, and their video, I was able to pinpoint almost to the tree where one of the guys shot a deer from. And I, and I messaged him and asked him, and he said, well, drop me a pin where you think it was, and I dropped it. He said, well, that's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I had no intention of ever hunting there, but it's just, it shows you, it doesn't take you much to put the puzzles together or pieces together and figure out where someone's hunting, and then that's the last thing I want to do. I mean, I've thought about using fake, or not fake, but grabbing satellite images from another area that's similar, and kind of use that just to help, uh, you know, visually show the viewers 
why I'm making the route that I am on a bird. And so, you know, if I can just, if I just show me walk through the woods, you really have no idea of the terrain features and stuff and why I'm making the decisions I'm making. So, um, I can do that, but it's, it's very difficult to show the actual satellite images without the place end up getting ruined by, you know, 10,000 people wanting to hunt that same spot just because I killed a goblin there. Right. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit then as far as like your route and things like that. So I'm not one to sit still too long. I mean, I obviously do it when I'm deer hunting because you almost have to sometimes if you know they're coming through. But so say you're turkey hunting, it's a spot you haven't hunted before, but you scouted it. You're going to get out of your truck and head to where your first location wants to be, or are you going to do some calls or something like that? What What are you uh, initially trying to do? Uh, well, one of the first things I probably already have in mind is where I'm going hunting and where I'm going to listen for that first morning. Say, so if I it's a new place and I'm traveling out of state, I've already picked on the map where I want to start. And that's usually a spot that I want to listen and then go from there. I'll go stand there. And and sometimes I actually, a lot of people, you know, you'll see in the videos, I'm just basing this on YouTube videos that I see of other people or people I've hunted with. They'll go to an area and they'll just stand there and wait for it to get light. And then all of a sudden, you know, the owl hoot when it's getting light or whatever, and <clears throat> the bird sounds off really close. Now they're scrambling to get set up. Well, one of the things I like to do, because I get there well before light a lot of times, is I'll actually get set up, you know, find a tree that I can sit against. And that way, if something sounds off nearby, I'm already set up. You know, I may have to shift my body you know, to the right or left or whatever, depending on where the bird sounds off at. But I'm prepared to hunt that location if I hear one uh, close by. Not, not all the time. Not every time do I sit down next to a tree, but I at least have a kind of an idea, okay, if one sounds off nearby, I'm going to sit right next to that tree or that sort of thing. Uh, and then, but a lot of times what I do is I actually plot a course. You know, I've studied these maps as I'm going, say, to Tennessee or something. Okay, where are the roads at? Where can I cover the most ground in one day? Like, I can park here, I can take this route, and I plot that course on the map, and it may take me a three-mile loop. And then I can hit this road and walk this road a mile back to my truck. So I want to cover a lot of ground. I don't want to just, I, I guess I've done it in the past where you just kind of get out and, and lo, run a locator call or a turkey call to get one sound off and you hop in your truck and drive to another spot. A lot of times my first day at some at one location or a new state to hunt is I, I plot a course to cover a lot of ground and that's kind of my plan. Sometimes I don't have to cover a lot of ground until we're turkey pretty quick. Then other times I may spend an enormous amount of time covering ground, but I hope I hope that was the, the answer you oh, were yeah. looking for so, the question. So then uh like like here in Illinois, I uh I can only hunt them until I think one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon. Mostly because you they don't want you putting them to bed in the trees at night is one of the reasons why, because they think, I guess their thought behind it is they don't want to sh- you to shoot them coming right off the roost or while they're going to the roost. So you can't set up underneath the trees. And then also they want you to share the woods with the mushroom hunters as well. So you're not allowed to mushroom hunt until after two o'clock, but oh, yeah, really? on state ground anyway, that's, uh, that's the way it works. Yeah. So like with that being said, go into the woods, set up in a spot, start calling, if you don't hear anything, keep moving to your next spot. You kind of got plotted out or where you think 
might be a good terrain for a turkey until you hear something. Then you're going to set up on them. Um, so what would, uh, like, what's, what's the calls that you would want to use the most? Like, what are the most, let's call it the five most important calls. All right. Well, um, number one, I got I, I usually try to feel this bird out a little bit. I, I started off uh, kind of, you know, light, you know, maybe some yelps, maybe a couple cuts in there just to see what his demeanor is. Basically, I'm going I'm to kind of start off, kind of feel the bird out a little bit. Um, I can't say that I always stick to that, that regimen or that routine, but I, I kind of want to feel what he's, how he's responding to me. I yell to him a few times, I cut to him, and he cuts me off and gobbles pretty good. Then I'll, you know, continue on that. I'm also kind of thinking the terrain. If you watch my videos, a lot of times you'll see me look at my phone often. And I think some people think that I'm just, you know, scrolling through Facebook or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking at, okay, what's nearby? What's over where he's at? What's in the direction to the right of, you know, of him? If, if maybe he's heading that, that way, their field. You know, do I need to move to cut him off? And uh, if I'm satisfied with the location I'm at, then I'm just kind of uh, feeling him out and listening to his response. Um, he's making good, covering a lot of ground, getting to me. You know, I, I don't need to pour it on. I mean, he's obviously heading my way. I may just sit there quietly. Um, but, you know, trying to think of hunts that I can uh, relate back to. Uh, maybe one of my Minnesota hunts, uh, the bird was was fired up and um you know i didn't call a whole lot to him and but he wasn't moving he was staying in one spot so then i poured it on and uh he still wouldn't move so then i decided to move closer to him change position and at first i thought i'd spook him because he shut up well what he had done was i guess because i'd stopped calling and started moving towards him he stopped gobbling, started moving towards me, but he took a different route. He went around the top of the ridge, and I was trying to cut to the valley. When I got over to close to where I thought he was, and I called, and nothing answered, and I just sat there, and then finally he gobbled. He was back up where I started. So uh, probably if I had just gone totally quiet, he may have come up there anyway. So I made a bad decision at that point. Um, but he basically got to where his roof tree was, where he started the morning. He flew down across the, the valley and he started gobbling up there, but it was kind of half-hearted gobbles. But across the valley, uh, like twice as far away, was another bird. He was just hammering. Every time I'd even make a peep, he would hammer back. And I was like, you know, that bird's pretty hot. Maybe I should just abandon this and go after that. And, and I was like, I don't know. Maybe I'll give this one more try. He's back up on that point. I can probably circle down around and come up the backside and just change positions again. So I started down the hill, and, and I wasn't calling, and he started gobbling even more. And I'm like, yeah, he's getting fired up again. This time he just stayed in the spot he was at, and I was able to get on the backside of this point and come up it. And as soon as I made my first couple, I scratched the leaves a little bit and made some clucks and purrs and little, little bubble clucks. He hammered at it. But he would not come in closer, and, and he had to be within like 30 yards of me. And finally, I just quit calling, and he just gobbled, gobbled, and, he, and there was two little slopes on either side of this point. I could hear him spitting and drumming. You got to be listening for that sort of stuff, also, not just to gobble back, but listen for him moving through the woods if, you, if there's enough leaf cover, but the spitting and drumming. 
And I could pinpoint exactly where he was with each spitting drum that he was getting closer, but he was coming off around, circling around me. So I basically just belly crawled to the little edge of the point where I could peek over. And sure enough, there he was working his way around me. And uh, he didn't see me crawl over there, obviously. And he saw me when I come up with a gun, but he took a step to, to start to leave. But it was too late then. I mean, but I mean, like every situation is different. I'm, I usually, I'm a, more of a, I lean towards more aggressive calling. So a lot of times you'll see me call aggressively more often than not, I, in my opinion. And based on um, my years of turkey hunting, it seems like aggressive calling results in more kills more often than that that subtle approach where you just scratch the leaves and then couple clucks. You see that advice given a lot of people that a lot of people give often is, oh, just cluck a few times and maybe scratch the leaves and then just sit there and wait. He'll come. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, he'll come maybe three hours from now or or six hours from now. I want that bird to come now, you know. And what I've seen is um, it just seems like the aggressive type of calling, it either brings him in or it brings in a, a satellite gobbler. And uh, I've had good success doing that. So are you, so when you say aggressive, are you meaning like aggressive as in a Jake that's wanting to come into a hen or are you doing mostly hen calls? When I say aggressive, I mean like a lot of cutting some excited yelping. It's like that. Um, and and I guess you could throw in there if you added Jake yelps or if you try to sound like multiple birds or you ran two calls at one time. Like sometimes I'll run a pot call and a mouth call at the same time, sound like multiple hens. Yeah, that, I guess all that would be aggressive style calling. But typically, when I just refer to aggressive calling, I'm talking about if I was trying to sound like one hen. I'm trying to sound like a fired up hen, and she's just hammer cutting back and forth uh, to this this bird, this goblin. And um, and I guess the reason I got into that type of calling is I've had hens come in to my calling, my basic hen yelps, or whatever, and they'd come in and they would start cutting, and I would instantly hear a, a change in the birds in the distance. They'd start gobbling more often. And it seemed like you know they were getting closer. Sometimes they would come on in. I actually had that. Um, happened one time in Wisconsin. Um, I had this hen come in to my call, and, and she kind of saw me laying against this, you know, log that was laying on the ground. It had some tall grass around it, and she couldn't quite figure out what I was. And she walked right up to me, and I'm like, if she, well, actually, she was walking by me because the bird that was gobbling off to my left. And I said, if she gets makes one more step, I'm gonna scare her. And when she made one more step towards that bird, I leaned up and flailed. Flail, whatever i just moved my arms around <laughs> i can't say the word um to scare her and she went straight up in the air and then landed about 30 yards to the right well that freaking hand started cutting and I just pack, 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 and walking back to me she walked about five feet of my foot she didn't know what i was at moving she was she was irritated and, and trying to get me to move she got about five feet from me and i I yelled at her this time and, and jumped and scared her. She did the same thing, went up about 30 yards in the in the air and landed off to my right, and she kept on cutting. She Because I didn't chase, I didn't chase her, I guess that's why she stuck around. She just saw an object just move each time, and she was trying to figure out what it was. And uh, probably being in an agricultural environment, she, you know, they weren't as wild as, say, a, a bird in Alabama or Georgia or something <laughs> that would have hauled butt. But all that cutting she was doing, those birds were fired up behind me. 
And so I started cutting back to him. So it was just two of us. Back, 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 back. And those birds were getting louder and louder. And then finally they just quit gobbling. And the hen got to the off interest and she drifted off to her right and went into the woods. And it wasn't, you know, maybe 30 seconds later I heard and caught movement out of my left. Here come those two gobblers that were off in the distance. They had heard that commotion and it brought them right in. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess I got off uh, on a little sidetrack there. Um, but yeah, that's aggressive, aggressive calling to my, uh, when I talk about it, it's basically me replicating one aggressive hen. Uh, but all that that I said earlier could be included in that, you know, sound like multiple birds, et cetera. So when you cut, how do you, how do you actually do that? Is that? Well, on a mouth call, yeah. uh, assuming you're talking yeah. about, um, you're basically using your tongue to, to stop the reeds and you're using a lot of air to get that, that volume. And so you, your tongue is going up and down. And every time it goes down, you got to force a lot of air and then slam your tongue up against the reeds quickly. And so it's a little burst of air. And I'm trying to think of how I would describe that. I, mean, I guess if you were huffing. Well, not really huffing. That's coming down the wrong. I've never really given it much thought, I guess. <laughs> but it's a, basically a forceful amount of air out of your mouth. And you're just opening, uh, slightly lowering your tongue each time and slamming it back shut to stop those reeds instantly and it gives you that loud and just a little bit of practice you can get to where you can uh, kind of do it louder and more aggressively and, and yeah because that's one thing i've uh tried doing and I, for some reason i can't get a cut i can't get it down but after you explaining that it makes a little more sense to try and do that um yeah and i need to really think about that one day and, and try to figure out how to best describe how to get that air across um, to create that cut. I guess I've really never given it much thought. So when you're you're doing, like, say you're doing your yelps, you're, you're doing hen yelps, get the, the gobbler to come in, and then depending on whether he's fired up or not, you're going you're gonna to start cutting and yelping as well. Uh, what are some other things, say you got one that's kind of, he sounds off, but you can't get him to come in or something like that. What do you... What are you trying to do? Well, I mean, I, I guess I start digging in my bag of tricks, and I'm, and I'm, I'm grasping at straws sometimes, and I, but not really. I mean, a lot of these tactics will, will be very good tactics to try, and that's like, for instance, J-Kills. I've used that quite often, and that is a, a very uh, effective call. Um, if you can start, you know, while you're hand yelping, and, he, and the bird is gobbling, but he doesn't sound totally interested, or maybe he's, you know, he's adamant about staying where he's at. You know, throwing some of those little yawky JKL, you know, and and a lot of times uh, that'll bring in bring in a gobbler thinks, okay, there's a Jake around or there's a male, another male turkey around, and and for some reason it's it's not always. It seems like to me that it's not always the hen that the bird is interested in. I mean, you could throw hen calls out there, and the bird, he's just not interested in going to a hen for whatever reason. But if he hears, if you, you know, replicate a gobble, for instance, or Jacob, that male turkey, sometimes they just want to go to other male turkeys to hang out, you know, not necessarily to fight. Um, and then sometimes it's the dominant thing. They just want to, you know, okay, you're in my area here, or I'm the dominant bird, and they're, they're coming there to, 
to show their dominance or, or whatever. You don't never know. You never know what's going through a gobbler's head. But I, but Jake Elks and gobbles, for instance, can be very effective. I've seen over the years, and and, and it's something I will try to use occasionally. Um, and then you get on down into your bag of tricks and you start grasping at straws. You can throw in fighting purges. It sounds like two, you know, jakes or two gobblers fighting. And sometimes that'll pull them in there. And, uh, you know, sometimes some of those little tricks work sometimes. So what would be the difference between like a regular, like a cluck and a purr versus a fighting purr or something like that? And what, what di- differentiates them, I guess, would be the word I'm looking for. Well, I mean, uh, if we're speaking of fucking purr of a contented hen that's feeding, for instance, I mean, that's real subtle and soft. And, and the, the terms, I think, should be changed technically to describe each. So a hen that's feeding, I would call that a, a pippin purr. You know, it's kind of a... It's got a little pippy sound to it. And it's real quiet. Whereas a clucking purr, or what I like to call a cutting purr, of maybe a hen that heard you call and she comes in. If you've hunted long enough, you probably have one of these loud mouth hens come in. It is a, more of a cut than it is a cluck. And they're trying to find this hen that a little agitated. And I wouldn't say they're always coming in for a fight. They're, and I think a lot of people think that's what that sound means and the reason that hen came in for. I think sometimes it's, it's just a hen that wants to be with another hen. And a lot of times these birds that come in, you hear them, you know, cut purr, cut purr, and doing all that stuff. They're usually juvenile birds. And you can look, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to this or don't know this, but you can look at the wing patch of a turkey and, and tell whether it's a juvenile or an adult. With gobblers, it's a lot easier. You just look at their beards or their, their fan or their spurs, whatever, if you can see all that. But a lot of people see a hen and like, oh, yeah, this false hen came in and started, you know, carrying on. You know, and then, you know, you, I'll see videos on YouTube and, and they'll say that, but you look at it and it's a little juvenile hen. It, it's basically the equivalent of a Jake. It's just a one-year-old hen. And you can look at her wing patch and tell that because it's not filled out fully. And that's usually, 90% of the time, that's usually what comes into your call and it's not a false hen. It's just a juvenile hen looking for other birds to hang out with and they're not ready to, you know, fight or whatever. Anyway, I'm off. It's fine. It's fine. We'll get. We'll circle back to it. So, um, the Jake, yeah. So you got the you got the what I call the pip and purr, the kind of the feeding hen, and then that cut and purr of a kind of an agitated or a, just a curious hen coming in. She's loud and she's cutting and purring. And then uh, fighting purr. That's just you know that's aggressive. That's irritated. They're fighting. It, it builds up too as they get each close to each other. It's like real loud and, and then they start fighting and, and it, you don't hear a lot of uh, clucks and cuts in that. It's more of a and then some people describe it as a rattle and, and it's you know, if you're close to it you can hear kind of that rattle sound I guess as they would uh, would describe it as. Uh, so I mean usually that's when they're fighting that fighting for obviously the term and it's very loud and you can hear from a long ways off and then you'll hear wing slaps and wing beats as they pound each other and stuff and, and carry on, but, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Uh, can you, uh, can you add in some audio to the to your podcast like, when you edit it and you, we can show a little demonstration to each if you'd like. Yeah, I, mean, I can, I can do that too. Yeah. 
because I have I have the audio. Okay. It'll be better than me <laughs> trying to describe my mouth. I don't know. To me, it sounds pretty good, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I could add it in, um, or even just I could put links to your stuff too. So yeah, I have I have a mouth call with me. I could I should have had this ready. I could have demonstrated on it a little easier. But uh, but go ahead if you want with the next question. Well, my next question was going to be so. Besides that, what else are you uh, kind of throwing at them? You know, as far as I know, it's all kind of scenario based here. But you know, um, what? Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not always turkey calls that I throw at them. Sometimes I'm using locator calls, and like a barred owl call is my favorite to use. And I have a crow call that I carry with me, but I rarely use it. But sometimes you don't want that bird to advance to you. And the best way to do that is use a locator call. And I use, like I said, an owl call all up through the day. Some people seem to be in this mentality, oh, owls don't hoot during the day. You can't use an owl call. They'll know something's up. Well, I hear barred owls hoot at all, all times of the day. Obviously, it's not as frequent during the middle of the day as it is in the early morning, the evening, and at night. But they still do it. And turkeys have heard that. So that I mean, it's not something out of the norm for them. But if I've got a bird on a spot that is gobbling, and maybe I'm in a location that is not desirable to call him to, I may want to move on, you know, move around him to get to one side or the other and set up. And I may hit him with a owl hooter, you know, when I'm making that last 30 yards to get in position because, okay, I need to figure out where he's at so I don't bump him out of here. Let me, I'll hit an owl hooter just to give him the gobble once, and then I can make that last 30 yards. So, you know, it, you, you can't always think in the terms of turkey call on killing a bird. You, sometimes you just got to pull out a locator call and, and, and help you in your strategies on moving on that bird before you get set up to start calling. So are you uh, are you one that uses – actually, I heard you use a goose call sometimes too because you said you were hunting one time and it, a goose flew over and was honking. And Is that something that – that's normally in your bag of tricks. Where did you see that anyway? Where did you hear that at? You know, I I don't recall, but it might have been on another podcast, or it might have even been you were doing an interview with somebody or something. And you mentioned you mentioned the goose call. Yeah, I have I have one up in my office right now, but I haven't carried it in my turkey vest for quite some time, and that's um, mainly because I figured out how to coyote howl on a mouth call, and that's kind of been my. Uh, replacement call. It seems to be more effective than the goose call. But yeah, I was I was hunting in South Carolina, and uh, this was many years ago. And I, no matter what I threw out there, I didn't know there was birds nearby. I just was hoping there was something nearby. I couldn't get a bird to gobble. I think well, I heard them earlier that morning, but I couldn't relocate them. And I was walking a ridge, and I couldn't get any birds to gobble. About that time, a goose, a lone goose, flew over and just started, and he gobbled to it. And I started carrying a goose call like that, and I had some success with it. It worked pretty good, and you know, I pulled it out as the last uh, ditch effort. Um, but nowadays, I, I just use my turkey mouth call to coyote howl on, and that if you if I can't get one to gobble with an owl call, or or, or say a cutting on a pot call, which is another favorite of mine, if I'm trying to locate a bird, I'm, I may get a pot call out, just cut real aggressive on it. Um, that coyote howl, a lot of times, will elicit a gobble. 
So do you do you do like a, a yip and howl with your with your uh, mouth call, or what? Are, what are you doing? Yeah, I I, I kind of bark and howl. It's uh, I use the rasp or relax my tongue and, and tongue and get that um, that barky sound. <laughs> and then I do the basically if you're doing a key key on a on a turkey call, it so it's basically a drawn out key, and I get that. Um, the howl at the end. You want to hear it real quick? Sure. I can, hopefully this call is ready. It's uh, I didn't have it separated with the reed separated. <laughs> 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 you hear that little bit of rat right there? That's where I get my bark. Oh, it actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> it brought my dog down. He come running down here to see what's going on. <laughs> Is that um, Callie, the dog? Is it Callie? Yeah, that's Callie. She's on my uh, the tracking dog. Your yep. tracking dog. The Callie Chronicles. Yeah. When uh, I can say, because I got to say this real quietly, if I say you want to go on a mission, she hears the word mission, and boy, she perks it. You want to go on a mission? You just hurt that. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't been on one in weeks. <laughs> She's over there nudging her leash now since she thinks we're getting ready to go on one. I'm just, I'm just kidding, girl. So lay down. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I guess that's kind of the questions I have for you as far as setup and stuff like that. I'm not really too sure what else. Uh, what's, what's something that you absolutely don't want to do as far as a call out in the woods? Um, I don't know. I guess you don't want to do a alarm putt. And um, I've, you know, some people think that a, a cluck is a dangerous call to do because it can sound somewhat like a cluck or, or a putt, alarm putt. Um, and I guess if I don't know if anyone's ever paid attention to it, and I've, I think I've mentioned this to a few people, I watch my videos and you'll see that I typically end any cutting uh, sequence or any cut clucks. I throw in a few soft yelps at the end, and that's just ment- mentally me wanting the turkey to me trying to tell the turkey, hey, that wasn't putts I was doing. That was uh, just some clucks, and I threw in some soft yelps to reaffirm that. So you'll see me a lot of times, or even if I'm doing them soft, like, I always add a few yelps at the end, just uh, and you can see it. If you watch a bird up close, their body language, I've had Jake's in close, and I'm just kind of messing around with them, and I'll go, and you'll see them all, you know, the snood on their heads kind of draw up real quick, or the, and you'll see them flinch, but as soon as I go, right at the end, they all, you see them all relax, you know, just kind of, they kind of hunker down a little bit, and you can see the snood start to lift, and, and you, so you, that's, I guess, probably what drove me to start doing that. Because I can imagine a bird out there at 50 or 60 yards, and I'll go, and I can imagine them perking up. And then I'll go, and I'll imagine them just kind of relaxing. Okay, everything's cool over there. I got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when when you're hunting, are you do you ever go without a uh, decoy, or are you always carrying a decoy with you? Um. I definitely don't always carry a decoy. I'm just trying to think how often it is. I'm, I was actually looking at some of my hunts the other day, and if I had to guess, I'd say about 
not quite half, but a, a large portion of my hunts are without a decoy. I may have one with me. I won't say that um, the that many that I didn't have a decoy in my possession because, I mean, it is it is obviously a tool to use um, in the right situation. And and the reason I, that say about half my hunts or a little more are with a decoy and then about half are without is because I use a decoy as a tool and not a crutch. And a lot of people use them as crutches. And what I mean by that is they get in this mentality, oh, I've got to put it out. I've got to put it out. You know, not the mentality that if I put it out, it's going to work, but they just get into this routine that, oh, I need something for them to focus in on. Hey, girl, she had some input. <laughs> um, <laughs> so don't get caught up in there. You know, of course, I'll have one with me sometimes, but only if the situation dictates that I need to put one out. And being that I'm self-filming, I don't just put a decoy out just to be putting out. There's certain situations dictate that. But what's nice, because I self-film most of my hunts, every once in a while I have someone to film and it gets a little easier, the decoy gives them something to focus on. And the decoy doesn't always just lure the bird in. You know, sometimes these birds are in gunshot, you know, gun range when they come into sight of the decoy. But it gives them something to focus on for me to to move my camera, move my hands, get my hands in position to shoot one of them. So it's it's a nice aspect, uh, a, a nice tool in that aspect. Um, but there are situations that they're not needed. You know, I'm hunting the swamp bottoms in Wisconsin and this thick vegetation. There's a good chance they're not going to see it by the time, you know, especially when I'm filming someone, they're not going to see the decoy by the time they get in gun range. So you don't even need to fiddle around with uh, putting one out or worry about um, carrying the extra weight depending on how heavy the decoy is you use. If you're using one of those little foam ones, then there's no issue there. But some of the other ones may you know, may weigh a pound or two and just add more bulk to your vest. They're definitely a great tool to use, but you got to look at, you know, it's just like with anything. you got to look at what are the benefits and uh, of using one and what are the benefits of going without one and just each hunt. It takes that, I guess. If I know I'm going to an area that's going to be like I described earlier, thick cover, I won't even bother carrying one. The Wisconsin swamp bottoms I was talking about, uh, there's several videos that I hunt the river bottoms, and I never even carry a decoy back in there. Usually the, the stuff is knee, knee high, you know, the vegetation. I mean, you sit down, you're just going to see a turkey's head coming through the brush anyway. They're not going to see a decoy unless you've got it sitting on a, a six foot pole. Um, but then there are other times that it, it comes in handy, like my daughter's hunt down in Florida. Um, I don't think with me trying to manage her, you know, filming it and trying to help her get her gun up, you know, and, and do multiple things. If I didn't have something out there to focus that bird to focus attention on, that she wouldn't have been able to kill that bird if we were just sitting there without one. So I mean, but like I said, just just don't use them as a crutch. Don't just put them out every single time just because you think it's going to work for you. Uh, weigh the options and, and weigh the pros and cons of each situation. You know, sometimes it may scare the bird off. Uh, I I can't say that I've actually had that happen. Um, I guess I've seen people have problems with strutters scaring birds off, but I, I never I've never really hunted with a strutter, so I've never had that issue with my Jake decoy. So are you using just like a regular? Uh, I guess it'd be like a walking, or what? What are you? What's it called when the, the decoy then? Uh, well, my my go-to these days is just a quarter strut Jake. Mm -hmm. 
non-aggressive. Um, I don't even, I have some hand decoys. I've used them here and there, but it's almost, my decision right now is almost, I don't even want to carry a hand anymore. I mean, you got you to think like this. I'm hen calling, so obviously there's a hen somewhere. They just can't see that hen. So that I'm a an audio decoy, and then I got a Jake out there. Uh, that and here's the thing about the reason I use a Jake. <clears throat> if you had a hen decoy out in front of you, and here comes your goblin, in, he stops out there out of, outside of gun range and starts strutting, because he's displaying that hen. He wants her to come the rest of the way, right? Well, swap that hen for a Jake decoy, a male decoy out there. Um, he hears a hen nearby. He's not really, the odds of him hanging up out there and just displaying are much lower because now he's got to engage this, this other male turkey. And the only way for him to do that is to come up to it. And so then it brings you into gun range. So I've had so much more success using a male decoy over a hen decoy. And just because, the, you know, I walk a lot. Uh, that's another reason I only carry just the Jake decoy, not hens. But I'll, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm making hen sounds. They obviously hear a hen nearby. They know one's nearby. They just don't see her. So to me, it just makes sense to carry that one Jake decoy and, and a non-aggressive posture. Um, the strutting, uh, more aggressive type decoys, sometimes they scare birds off if it's a subordinate. Uh, sometimes they don't if it's a more dominant bird. I just... I haven't seen with a Jake, a non-aggressive Jake decoy, uh, it scare any birds off. So that's why I continue to use it. That makes sense. So you mentioned uh, like knee-high and waist-high vegetation. So one of the things I want to ask you is actual uh, like tick control or mosquito and tick and all that kind of stuff. You treat your clothes or what do you do to take precautions as far as that goes? Well, I, ha- I have, I have per, per, per me three. Yeah, from this room. <laughs> I have that stuff um, that I'll frame in clothes. But I also have some uh, clothing that a Minnesota company up here produces called Elimitic. It's made by GameHide. Mm-hmm. And it has it infused in the fibers. Um, I still have some of that clothing I wear. Uh, depending on how hot it is or how cold it is, um, sometimes I just wear the pants of that and my shirts are not even treated. And that seems to work. I rarely ever find ticks on me. Um I have had, I have been diagnosed with Lyme disease, but believe it or not, I did not get bit by the tick that gave me Lyme disease while I was turkey hunting. I got it in the backyard here in the middle of the summer. <laughs> of all oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was like in July or, or something like that, and I found ticks on me, and I didn't know how long it had been there, you know, a, a few days or whatever. But uh, of all places, I, I rarely find ticks on me in the, when I'm turkey hunting. I'll find Every, you know, every once in a while, but usually I have that um, permethrin treated clothing on, or I have that limited that um, some of that clothing. All right, the, thanks for that, because <clears throat> that's one thing that I always kind of think about, especially when you mentioned you're taking your daughter out on a hunt too. You kind of always want to protect your kids as mm-hmm. well from that kind of stuff. But uh, before we wrap this up, I kind of want to ask you. Because right now all the tags are coming in and all that kind of stuff. What are your plans for the for the season? Um, well, I have I have my go to spots. I like to go. I always like to go to South Dakota, so that's going to be in there. Um, I'm going to hunt in Florida again this year. And I told uh, if people that have watched the show, Doug Updike is kind of a regular. He kicks it off uh, in Florida many years. Um, 
And I told him, I said, I don't know if I'll come back next year. I said, we've, we've done, you know, a bunch in a row. But this Florida trip, you know, I'm in Minnesota and Florida, you know, 30-hour drive away. It becomes a, a long haul down there. And, and I said, maybe next year we'll skip that. I'm, I'm getting off subject again. <laughs> no, that's Anywho, fine. my plans are I'm going to Mississippi. I'm going to Florida. I am going to Tennessee. I'm going to Nebraska. South Dakota, Minnesota, obviously, and, and Wisconsin. And then I have three states I'm on the fence about, and I'm trying to decide, Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And uh, I know one of those will make it into the mix. Uh, right now, I don't know which one. And maybe all three will make it into the mix. We've just got to see how um, how things are going along and, and then just see how my schedule can fit all that in there. So... Uh, that's kind of my plans right now. So you got any plans? Uh, I saw a picture of you telling a story recently, and I think you were with uh, Sam Solhalt and uh, the Hunting Public Boys or something like that. Yeah, we were in Tennessee. They, you know, that was just pure coincidence that we ended up in there. I was in Mississippi last year, and I, and I had talked to uh, Catman, uh, Jonathan Bohm, uh, about hunting Tennessee, and we had talked about early in the year, like in February or something, January, about hunting in Tennessee. He's like, when are you going to come? And I was like, I don't know, maybe first week of April, you know, that first week of the season's open. I didn't get there opener. I got there a little bit after opener, I guess, a, a day or two. Um, and then I, I talked to the guys with, um, I guess, Aaron's uh, other guys he used to work with on Spring Thunder, um, Andy and, and uh, gosh, <laughs> sorry sorry Andy I'm forgetting your last name <laughs> anyway, anyway I spoke running, I don't remember as soon as I get off this podcast with you um, I ran to those guys in Nashville and uh, and they were they were telling me hey you know the honey public's going to be in town that same week you're going to be there and, and we're probably going to be there also I was like really so what are the odds of that so I left Mississippi and I, and I stayed down there a couple of days long and I should have and got up there to Tennessee and met up with Catman and, and, and hung out with the the hunting public guys a little bit. So that was pretty cool. And yeah, we were, we were telling stories and stuff. And I don't even remember what I was asking to tell the story. <laughs> they posted a picture of me bent over describing something and everyone was laughing, except for Sam Soho. <laughs> yeah. Obviously he didn't find whatever I was discussing funny. Yeah. So. It looked like a funny picture anyway, but uh, I just figured I'd bring that up and I uh, hope you have a good season. And I got one week to kill a bird. So hopefully, uh, talking to you helped me out a little bit and I got got some practicing to do I think yeah you're gonna just try and hunt Illinois you're gonna try and hunt some other areas uh I got I got three little ones so uh under the age of five so I try and stick close to home as much as I can and I normally get one trip away um so it'll be it'll be sticking close to home, and the way my tag works is I got one week to get a bird. I think you were getting ready to ask if I was having any plans of hunting with the hunting public this year. Is that what you were leading up to? No, I was just uh, seeing what the what was going on. I don't even remember exactly. I saw that picture. I thought it was a pretty funny looking story, whatever it was, and that's that's all. Yeah, I'm I'm anxious to see what their schedule is going to be because uh, you know, not that I'm going to be hunting with them. I just I enjoy watching their show. <laughs> As much as anyone, I enjoy watching turkey hunting. Uh, Dave Owens and Hody Project, he just put out one this morning, a new video this morning from last season. He was hunting up here in Minnesota, of all places. 
I'm ready for turkey season. I'm ready for all these guys to get moving and start putting out some content because it's fun to watch Catman and all those guys. I don't know if you wanted them mentioned on your podcast, but oh no, I great, it, yeah, it's it's totally great, fine. Yeah, there's some great YouTube com- content coming out from these guys. It, it sure beats watching the the same old same old TV. I actually don't even I uh, I quit watching pretty much all TV shows on uh, the outdoor channels, if you will. Um, just cause it's all the same stuff. I don't, I don't care much for something where it's pretty much a trigger, man. I want to see people actually actively hunting. You know, you see all these people, they show up, they kill something and they just, it doesn't even seem like they're passionate about it. I, I, and that's, I think what I like about the YouTube channel is there's guys like you out there. There's guys like the hunting public and all that to where it's truly their passion and they're doing it all on their own without some big production company setting everything up. And that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, and, and and the aspect you touched on is is you're seeing them from the time they get there in a place that wasn't you know uh, you know groomed for them their arrival say as an outfit or something and, and people want to hunt that way that's fine but to me what you know and I think a lot of people like is seeing you look at an area that you've never been to basically looking at satellite images and maps or whatever and then going there and figuring it out on the go. And filming and documenting this, and you know, and whether they kill a bird or not is irrelevant. But we're seeing that on these these shows, like the Hunting Public and Dave Owens, and, and then Catman. He travels a little bit out of state, and there's, and there's a few here and there. And it's, there's not a whole lot of great channels out there. And what I mean by that, they're not putting out consistent uh, content. You know, you'll see someone post a video too. And then it's almost like they, they half-heartedly want to go after producing content. They'll film a couple of hunts. But uh, I'm hoping that changes in the near future. I'm hoping more and more people start documenting their seasons, you know, and putting it out there. And, you know, because people want to watch that stuff. They want to see how you tackle, other people tackle, uh, you know, the difficulties of hunting public land. And it's also... Um, What's neat about it is these are places that theoretically all of us could go hunt. It's not you know, some high-dollar ranch somewhere that we'll never see. You know, if we want to go off to Mississippi or Tennessee and hunt, we can. Yeah, I think that's kind of the beauty of the whole the whole thing about all that. It it uh, definitely appeals to me, and it's one of them things where all you got to do is apply for it. You don't necessarily even have to ask for permission because it's yours. So mm-hmm. that... Uh, it definitely helps. Well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I appreciate you having me on, Luke. Uh, I, I always look forward to talking about turkey, and especially right now. My my little switch in my head turned about a month ago, or back in November, I think. It switched, and I was wanting to – I was ready for deer season and tracking season to end so, and turkey season to get here. I don't want to wish my life away, but – <laughs> or I'm sure looking forward to turkey season. All right, I appreciate it, man. I'll uh I'll let you get back to your day. I appreciate you ha- you having it in the own today, Luke. Yep. All right, man. I appreciate it, and I'll uh. All right, man. Have All right. A good one. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. Also, you can find us on Instagram at publiclychallenged, 
And you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or publiclychallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.